Hello and welcome. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Shiloh Logan. We started Latter-day Contemplation to largely explore and document our journey of study and faith as we seek to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in anything that we're going to be talking about, but what we do have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to live a life of peace for ourselves, our families, and our community. We love that you are here, and we hope that you find value in this discussion to enhance and strengthen your own discipleship of Jesus Christ. Well, Shiloh, I think we're on episode six now, and it's uh, it's your turn to choose a topic, and as we kind of discuss some things off air, um, several things came to mind for me, and it just happened that they overlapped the same things that you've been studying and ideas that you've had. So today we're going to discuss this idea of the true self and false self from a couple of different perspectives, secular, religious, spiritual, psychological, psychoanalytical, and just see where that takes us and uh, how it might aid each of us in our, in our faith journey that we continue to pursue. And hopefully this is something that's interesting to our listeners as well. So Shiloh, what is your understanding of the difference between the true self and the false self. Wow, that's kind of a a definition. I think we have to take the whole hour to take. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but to kind of take for on. A, but for a listener chiming in who has no idea where this topic comes from or what the context of it is on a very high level, what what are some of the differences, or how would you frame the conversation for us to get started? All right, so here's the conversation. We are born into a world, and we're taught a language. And from a language, we are taught an identity, whether it's a family identity or a community identity. We're taught a national identity. We're given we're given identity all the way around. For those of us who were born and raised in a church, we're given religious identity. And these identities are given to us in stories. They're given to us in scripture stories. They're given to us in real-life application stories. They are They frame the entirety of everything that we consider unique to us and who we are. And so these identities really start to inform how we experience the world and how we begin to contextualize and frame how human relationships and how human emotions should be handled. You know, what emotions should we have? What emotions shouldn't we have? What people should we adhere to or to associate with and who we shouldn't? And so our ideas of God in this whole narrative really begin to influence how we begin to see each other. And it really happens in fascinating ways. Um, My wife has been reading several books recently about how the view view of God in American Christianity has taken on and actually informed how our legal world, for instance, views the penal system and how our prison system is established and the laws are framed around that. That actually derived, came and was derived from a talk about how we view God. And so that's how we view each other. You know, in how do Christians view the LGBTQ community? You know, how we view sin, how we view sin in the other. How do we feel like we can associate and disassociate with everybody all comes from these narratives and these identities. And so it's fascinating and I've absolutely loved it. I really do think it's the best definition of de- of repentance that I have read out there. The one that we have in the LDS Bible dictionary. It just 
it speaks to me at every level because in the LDS Bible Dictionary, the very first sentence says that it's the Greek word, which this is a translation, denotes a change of mind. It's a fresh view about God, about oneself, and about the world. See, for me, that's just incredible because that's not how we talk about repentance, Riley. Right? We, we talk about repentance as like you sin and the repentance is the process by which you make restitution, by which you, you acknowledge what you did, and then you change from the bad behavior that you did into having good behavior. So repentance is more about apologizing for behavior and actions and then making sure you don't do those actions again. Yeah, like we've talked about in the past, the cultural view within our church, at least, is one of, of a transaction being completed. You know, we, we screwed up our end of the bargain. We apologize for it. We're restored to full fellowship or faithfulness with our benefactor God and all is well. We're back on an even keel again. And so there's this trans, transactional element to it. Whereas what you actually read that's as close to canon as you can get, right? It's right there in the Bible dictionary. It says, a fresh view about God. It's like, wow, okay, that that has nothing to do with saying we're sorry and trying to get on good terms again with God. It's about transforming how we see God and how we interact with each other, how we interact with God, how we interact with the world as as a whole. It's a fresh view. That's something completely different than what we experience, uh, at least the you know the majority i think uh within the church and and that's a direct result of of identity and culture that we've overlaid on top of what what we're going to start to define as the true self yes exactly so in doing this you know jesus christ in in section 1 and so in dnc 1 and it's this verse here that has perplexed me for a very long time. And it's not until I got into contemplation and really started to look at repentance in a new way than I had before, kind of from the standard way that we talk about it at church. But in verse 16, it says, they seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way and after the image of his own God. And I'm like, wow, what does that mean? To walk after the image of your own God. I'm glad you brought this part up because as you were opening your uh, your understanding or ex explaining your understanding of, of this concept, one of the things you said is that our, our view of God informs how we interact with all those people around us and they create our, our secondary or tertiary identities. But I actually see it in reverse. I think our secondary identities, those things that culture and society has overlaid onto our original primary identity informs our view of God in reverse. And we, we end up making him in our own image as a result of false identities. Yeah, I think, in fact, I think Merton's going to agree with you. So the actual quote from Merton that I was talking about. Now, and for those who don't know, Thomas Merton is a Catholic theologian. He was a very, very well-known Catholic priest through the, the 50s and 60s, was really when he kind of came to prominence. His death is actually shrouded in mystery. There are a lot of people who think that he was actually assassinated. Um, there are a lot of weird things that happened at his death, but he was a very outspoken war opponent, especially against Vietnam, and he was gaining a lot of success in having a lot of people start to question war narratives, not just of a particular war with Vietnam, but in war in general, as about the state's legitimacy and authority to wage war. Because we have to frame this that for a thousand, for more than a thousand years, all the way back to Augustine and just war theory, the establishment of just war theory about how that came into the Christian world. When Christianity first started, it was 
a nonviolent tradition. They believed very much in the Sermon on the Mount. They practiced the Sermon on the Mount. They refused to serve in the military. They wouldn't even serve in government offices because the only thing the government can do to be able to administer its laws is through violence and coercion. And a Christian didn't feel that they could do that. And so it wasn't until Augustine and really Constantine that the violence of the state ended up marrying with Christian theology and we had the just war theory. And so now we have a Christian justification for going to war through the state. And you know, we have the Crusades and all sorts of things came about because of that. So Merton was this Catholic priest who was going back to the original seeds of Christianity, Sermon on the Mount, Beatitude stuff that we're going to talk about today. But his quote here, it says, so much depends on our idea of God, yet no idea of God, however pure and perfect, is adequate to express God as God really is. Our idea of God tells us more about ourselves than about God. And so that goes right to your point, Riley. It's that our idea of God is really informed by simply who we are. And so here's the discussion of the false self versus the true self and how we get from one to the other and how do we know if we're in one or the other. But the false self here is basically the identities that we have in this world, the things by which we have our private selves, those who intellectually want to talk about God, but we have never actually known and come into the presence of who and what God is. And so the false self is very ego-driven, it's informed by the world, and it actually informs our interpretation of the world. Whereas the true self is the the self that has sacrificed the false self. The false self has been sacrificed, it's been killed off. Call it the natural man, call it the ego. Merton calls it the true self and the false self. The true self is that which is now in a state with God, has become at one with God. And in such has actually begun to express the true measure of their creation. So when Christ says in Matthew 5.48, be ye therefore perfect, even as our Father which is in heaven is perfect, perfection there comes from the Greek word telos, which means complete. So it's to be complete in the purpose and the reason for which you were created. It doesn't mean that you can't sin. It doesn't mean, you know, you shouldn't sin. It doesn't, it has nothing to do with your actions. It's a state of being. Are you fulfilling the purpose of your creation? And that's really an answer that only you can have with God. And if ever we feel an accusing voice where we feel beaten down, trodden down, accused, if ever we feel the guilt or shame like we're not rising to our station, that's not God's voice. In fact, literally in Hebrew, Satan means the accuser and and the one who accuses and the one who's coming after us. So that voice is not from God. But that's the true self, is that self which is now at one with God. And for me, that discussion of how to come to the true self, is at, it, that is the very point of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. That's awesome. And I think that does a really good job as a segue of leading us into a little bit about what psychologists understand to be true self and false self. And it's very, it dovetails quite nicely, actually. Um, the first... I guess, recorded instance of using this, this particular phrase of true self and false self, this distinction in the, in the psychology world was a guy named Winnicott. And I was reading a little bit about him and, you know, he, he kind of talked about how the true self really emerges at birth. And it's that, it's that initial experience as an infant with the world that you're surrounded by. And what you do instinctually versus what is imposed upon you and then eventually becomes more than just an instinct. It becomes um, 
becomes a, a canon or law upon which you uh, by which you act, and that's the beginning that imposition of something that would override your natural uh, instinctual inclinations as an infant. The beginning of that uh, overriding is the beginning of the false self. And I think this is an interesting concept to look at from a spiritual religious standpoint, because, you know, if, if you take the, the grand view of the Garden of Eden and which we love to do here, <laughs> I mean, that <laughs> all is, the time, you know, there's a reason why that thing is the thing that's taught in the temple. I think, I mean, it's so deep. There's so much depth to it and so many levels and different ways to approach that that can inform your life. But if you take that that scene and relate it to this infancy narrative that I'm that I'm spelling out, it's it's sort of the same thing. You got Adam and Eve created their infants at least from from a standpoint of their their comprehension and their uh, experience and their innocence and naivete. They're they're essentially infants. And the things they do in their infancy are the things that are that come directly from their inheritance as a son and daughter of God. They do those things naturally. And I don't want to confuse that term with the term natural man, um, because we know, you know, from Scripture, natural man is an enemy to God. I think there's another definition of that that we can latch onto that we'll understand better. But the things that, that an infant does instinctively, and think about what those are, those are the things that are the true self, at least the unabetted, unaided, no additives, true self. And that, that's not to say that it can't be further developed from that, but at least that is a, one view of the true self in human form. And so the things that an infant does when it's in that state, what are they? Well, they do things that are in the present moment. They never obsess about the past because they have no context. They have no understanding of what the past is. There is only the moment that they're living in right then. And it isn't until they start to aggregate experiences and be able to anticipate occurrences that they start to think about the future. So in that moment, in the very beginning with infants, they really only have the context of the present moment. And so the things they do in the present moment are this. They breathe, for one, which cannot be overestimated how important that is. If you're trying to return to that moment of purity and, and unity with God in that present moment, there's probably no more important thing than just releasing everything around you and breathing. And yet infants and all of us do that instinctually. The infant does it almost in exclusion of everything else. There's almost nothing else that matters for an infant. They just do that. And then the mother will grab the baby and, you know, nurse the baby or something. And then it has an instinctual draw to that. The other instinctual things a baby does is observe. If there's a better word for contemplation than observation, I'm not sure what it is. That, that's pretty close to an exact one-word definition or synonym of, of contemplation. They observe. They see things as they are. And it's a type of observation that's free from judgment. That's exactly right. You know, you don't... you. You don't have a baby there that is observing with judgment of duality. It's just soaking everything in from exactly what it already is. And so it's this pure way of being able to observe, not just to observe, to categorize everything into parts and pieces, but it's an observing of just all things in like a wondrous awe of just soaking all that in and letting it be what yeah, it is. Yeah, and the observation is, is not purely visual at that age. I mean, if you wanted to get scientific about things, the pace at which a child 
absorbs the things around them and immediately starts learning from them is faster than we ever get to repeat later on in our life. Those first few formative years of infancy, they are pulling information in and retaining it faster than they ever will again in their lives, whether it be uh, sounds or feelings, visual, oratory, smells. They're, they're, they're attaching uh, meaning or experience to each one of those occurrences as they happen in the present moment. So they're literally experiencing things as they are felt with no context and no judgment, which is the closest and most pure way to experience something. You know, when we start informing all of our experiences that we're having in the present moment with past experiences, then they're immediately colored, at least in our minds, right? So there's there becomes to be a separation between what things are in actuality and the way that we are experiencing them with the context of our past experience. Well, for an infant, they have no context of past experience. They experience things in the very moment that it's happening as it is, as they as things are in themselves. And that's purity. That's truth. And, and to me, that's the beginning stages are the most pure, true self that you can find in the natural world. Listening to you, there's two scriptures that come to mind here. And for any listeners who might be a little bit confused about how what this has to do with the true self, you know, Riley, we've already quoted in a previous episode about Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus and about how to be right. born again, right? It's that birth of coming out into the new. A lot of our symbolism in church and in fact in our ordinances, especially with things like baptism, is this laying down of the old. It's going into the water. Now, water is always symbolic of chaos. It's not spiritual bleach water. It's not simply you go in, you get down, you come out, and it's gotten rid of all the the dirty and the grimy. Baptism is where you symbolically go in and the universe literally destroys, tears apart. It goes into absolute oblivion, everything that was, and we come forward as something completely brand new. Well, and to relate it directly to what you just mentioned with the experience that uh, Nicodemus and Jesus had their conversation, Nicodemus responds how to Jesus. He says, am I supposed to, are we supposed to enter the womb again and be born again? I don't understand. I mean, the irony of that, that he actually, without fully understanding what he was saying, he grasped the concept like perfectly. And baptism is essentially entering into a womb. I mean, you know, when we're in the womb of our mother, we're immersed we're in fluid, we're in we're in water, we're in chaos, just like you're talking about. And then we emerge from that water as an infant. Well, it's the exact same thing. When we're baptized, we're, we're in a womb and we, we emerge as an infant ready to experience the world as it is. And it's only after we start contextualizing every experience that we start losing the, the true sense of what each one of those things truly is. So Nicodemus wasn't far off. He was right. Yeah, I love the way you phrase that too, because it's that come that in the womb, the water coming out of the womb, it's the symbolism of life coming forth out of chaos. And, and this reminds me of Jesus's conversation with the woman at the well, which has easily skyrocketed in the last several years to one to my one of my favorites, if not my favorite Bible story, where Jesus proclaims himself as living water. He you know he tells the woman at the well that. Whoever drinks of the water that you're going to give him, this physical water, you're going to thirst again. But the water that I give you, I'm, you know, this water, this chaos, it's that you'll never thirst again. It's this way of realizing that in the universe, it, it's entropy, but there is a way of existing in the universe where to be living water is to come forth as 
triumphant out of the universal chaos. It's, it's to have life. It's that thing that gives life in all of the chaos and to be able to live independently and to be able to stand supremely as God is, because that's what God is. It's that life amidst the chaos of the universe. And, and to say chaos has yeah. this negative connotation, right? To be able to think that it's bad. But the thing is, it's not. Reality is just what reality is. And God, and I love how it in the Old Testament, it, God proclaims it good. Now, I was having a conversation with my wife the other night about our concepts of good and evil. Where, you know, there's a dichotomy, there's a duality there. I have glimpses where I don't look at reality that way anymore, and I'm getting more and more there, where I don't look at reality as good or bad. It just, it is what it is. But I, I proclaim it good because the more that I come into this unity with reality, at least as I perceive it, right? And as I have an intentionality to try to do this, to accept things for as they are, as opposed to how I want them to be. Because that that's where pain comes from. That's where failed expectations come from. We expect it to be one way and reality is another. And the goal for me through repentance is to align my will to where I just naturally am in reality. And that's where my perception is. And I don't want that which is not. And so pain and anxiety and depression for me slip away when I do that. And so to be able to draw into this, uh, this for me in coming to be living water is the true self. It's the letting go of the expectations and the identities of our economic groups, of our political groups, of our social groups, anything that has a temporal earthly identity that we associate ourselves to and that we give ourselves to and which causes us pride or admiration in this life. Those things, they don't get to go with us. All of those temporal labels are, are for naught. There's really nothing in them whatsoever. But it's these eternal moments when we are one with God and we are with God, those are the experiences that transform us and where we bring forth that new life and we can experience it here in the flesh. And that's the, that's what I really believe is the purpose of this life. I think the temple is the thing that symbolizes that whole journey because you come forward as someone absolutely brand new. And if you, if you symbolize, if you're coming up out of baptism, and as Joseph Smith said, is the temple rites and rituals are supposed to show an ascension into the contemplative space of the celestial room, is that it's coming forth as a brand new creature. Well, if you're a brand new creature as a baby, you don't know what your arms and legs or head or arms or what this body's for, but you're taught that. And then from there, you go forward and you learn about how to be empowered by God, to literally be coming at one with God. And then at that point, it's just, now what do you do with it? But then you just sit with it. And you and it's the, that contemplative moment. Now, Riley, I want to ask you this because in a Facebook chat here not too long ago, you and I had had a conversation with uh, with a few other folks who had talked about contemplation, and they were kind of taking not a negative view of contemplation, but the idea here is is that uh, Merton had said that contemplation is kind of the height of the human experience with God or of eternity. And so in the Catholic tradition, there are a few veins of thought that really place contemplation as just like people think that you just sit around and cogitate about God. You just think about God all the time, right? Or just kind of just like, oh, there's God and, and oh, isn't God great? But that's not contemplation for me. And what I found is that it's kind of a straw man to how you and I have talked about contemplation before. But can you talk about that a little bit? Can you talk about contemplation and the true self in that way? Contemplation, it's one aspect of the transformational process. It's not an end in itself necessarily, 
Um, there may be some immediate results that come from it, some immediate consequences that are uh, positive and for some people very painful. And that's important to realize as well that it's not an easy process to strip down and, and you know, lay yourself bare before God, basically. But this this process of transformation has steps to it. And um, there isn't a contemplative that I've ever studied who essentially says, this is the end-all, be-all. They always, always, always follow it with action. And there's intention, uh, intentionality attached to the contemplation, uh, whether that's uh, on the front end of the contemplation by kind of uh, focusing in maybe on a word or an intention of, of some kind, or whether it's on the back end of um, getting direction towards something that you're working on or would like to see happen. It's always attached with action if it's to be effective at all. And Merton talks about this all the time. Thomas Keating talks about this all the time. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about that. They all talk about action. Uh, Richard Rohr, they all talk. I mean, his his center is called the Center for Action and Contemplation. It's not just contemplation. Right. And, you know, so it's such an important aspect of the transformational process to see that actions must come from the contemplation. But for someone who is relying too heavily on the false self, they get too wrapped up in egoic pursuits to be able to lay things aside that have taken priority in their lives and take action in a Christian sense uh, for the betterment of all. It, that's that's almost an impossibility. There's that phrase in the Bible that says, hardly can a rich man enter into the kingdom of God. It, same as, you know, a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's because that camel's got to strip down. And, you, and you've, you're a seminary teacher, so you've heard the you know, the history of what a camel had to do if it was going through this gate in Jerusalem, you know, they had to take its packs off and everything and it had to go in on its knees. And while I really like that analogy, the human analogy to me is just so much more beneficial to, to think about and act upon. We've got to strip ourselves down, not of our backpacks and, you know, the things that weigh us down physically, but the things that weigh us down uh, emotionally, spiritually, figuratively speaking, those things that have become our secondary, tertiary, quaternary identities and have weighed us down and, and made it impossible to yoke ourselves to Christ. He said very clearly, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Well, how, how are we supposed to yoke ourselves to Christ when we're carrying these massive burdens? He asks us, put the burdens on me. Get rid of them. Strip yourself. You don't need that stuff. Yoke yourself to me. I make, I make that burden light. I make it easy. And so I want to be able to separate the idea of who we are naturally straight from God in that infant state of perfection and purity that we all appreciate. And I think there's a great tradition within our faith that, you know, children, infants are born perfect, perfect. They are, they're wonderful creatures of God and there's nothing wrong with them. Do they have physical imperfections? Yeah, who cares? They're perfect. And so there's no need for infant baptism. That's a, that's a long-standing tradition, not just with our church, but with many other traditional uh, Christian churches. So if that's the case, and we recognize that that quote-unquote natural human is without spot, blame, and sin, then we have to separate the meaning of who we are naturally from God from this phrase of the natural man. And I know I'm wandering off your initial question, but it's just kind of leading in that direction. So I'm going to keep going with it. Yeah, the, the natural man is the man that is described by Christ who 
is carrying all these burdens. The natural man needs and wants more stuff at all times. And by stuff, I don't always mean physical uh, accoutrements. That could definitely be it. The Book of Mormon, one of the initial things they talk about all the time that's the path to falling away from Zion and whatnot is that they started to wear costly apparel. Okay, so there you go. It's those accoutrements. It's those things that overlay our true self and make us into something that we're really not. And so whether it's more stuff, whether it's more knowledge, whether it's more, just more, whatever it is, it's all that stuff. And that's natural man. It's the man that's stacked with as much as he can possibly take on. And in the earth, there's enough and to spare. So there's a lot of stuff out there for us to go and get and keep. But ultimately, if we're to enter into that kingdom of heaven, we need to be not only poor in spirit, but we, we kind of need to just be poor. Just leave that word by itself. Because at that point, we're, we're not uh, caught up in our things, in our stuff. And so the less attachment that we have to all this stuff, the more we're stripped down, the more we start to approximate that natural state that we came into this world as infants as of the true self. It's the process of subtraction and return to that Edenic simplicity and unity that is symbolized in, in uh, the Garden of Eden. That's what we're trying to return to, is that, is that poverty of spirit. So, round, bring this all back all the way around to your original question. <laughs> Contemplation is about so much more than navel-gazing. And anyone who enters into a, a contemplative state and stays there forever without any action associated with it is, is going to be lost. You're, there, there's not a whole lot of purpose to that. So Riley, you and I have talked a lot about identity and about having to give up identity and what that means. So I'm going to read a scripture here, but while I'm doing that, think about a time, would you, I don't know if you would mind sharing just for yourself, and I, and I will too, a moment when you realized that you had a false identity. And the consequence of what that meant, what that was bringing into your life, maybe how you came to realize that you had that aspect of a false self or a false identity, and how going and moving past that brought joy to you. So think about that for a minute. I'm going to read this real quick. But here in Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, these three verses here, we, we could spend hours, just hours unpacking everything here. But specifically, I want to focus in on a couple, couple points. First, Christ is talking about those that do his will, do the will of the Father. But yet we're also told that Jesus goes off and says that the piety and simply the righteous actions of the priests are not sufficient. You have to surpass the righteousness of the priests, not just loving those who love you or, or going out and putting your hundreds of dollars into the, into the box for your tithing or for your show, right? It's not just about the action. There has to be a heart to it. So doing the will of the Father is not just that you checked your home teaching, your visit, visiting teaching off, or your ministering or whatever you call it now. It's that there has to be a desire behind it. And that's really what iniquity means here. Ye that work iniquity is iniquity in in Latin is this weird word. So there's this word equity there, which equity is like the true value or substance of a person. It's it's the desire from which a person acts in the good for the good's purpose. 
So this gets back all the way back to like Socrates and ancient Greek philosophy about what's the motivation for human action. But it's this concept where equity is the soul's desire for action. And in Latin, to negate a word is to add the, the prefix in in front of it. So for instance, sufficient is now insufficient. Capable is now incapable. And equity now here, they conjugate the E to an I, so we have equity, and now we have inequity, or iniquity. And so iniquity is a state of being where you have all the right actions, for instance, that you've prophesied and have cast out devils, and you've done many wonderful works, but the heart was never there. The actual soul in coming to God was never there. And so even though we have a lot of manifestations, we don't have a lot of the identity by which we acted it acted in it was not accurate. And only God can know this. This is not something that you can look at somebody else and be like, yeah, I can tell right there that that person's only bringing brownies to the next door neighbor for the pomp and the show. We just don't know. We look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. But I love this concept here about God not knowing us because when we get into the false self and with Merton here, it's really interesting because he talks about how we come to know God by God coming to know us. So I'm going to talk about the true self. I'm going to read a few passages. Now, this is from Merton's book called New Seeds of Contemplation. I highly suggest it. It's a wonderful book. Um, I just, I, I'm eating it up. I'm kind of on my one and a half time through it, as it were. But uh, he comes through here and he talks about, and he says, our discovery of God is, in a way, God's discovery of us. We cannot go to heaven to find him because we have no way of knowing where heaven is or what it is. He comes down from heaven and finds us. He looks at us from the depths of his own infinite actuality, which is everywhere, and his seeing us gives us a new being and a new mind in which we also discover him. All right. Now I'm going to take a, just take a step back from that and, and say, that sounds a lot to me like repentance. In that whole coming to see God and ourselves differently, this whole, how Merton is describing the new self is basically for me, as per the LDS Bible Dictionary's definition of repentance, this is exactly what he's talking about. God looks at us down from the depths of his own infant actuality, which is everywhere, and his seeing gives us a new being and a new mind in which we discover him. We only know him insofar as we are known by him, and our contemplation of him is a participation in his own contemplation of himself. Okay, this is going to take some unpacking here. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this this is this is this is really deep stuff because first of all, this is not how we talk about this in LDS theology. And there's a few things here that Joseph Smith might take issue with, like God is in the immensity of all things, right? That you know, because Joseph Smith would say God is an actual corporeal being, the Father and a Jesus Christ. And but that's not what we're talking about here as Latter-day Saints. We're talking about here as coming into uni union with God in the same way that the atonement is coming into union with God. That we're coming into the experience through the plan of salvation and learning how to become like our heavenly parents. And in doing so, there is this bringing forward from within each of us the recognition of what Jesus Christ said when he said, ye are gods. He already pronounced it in the New Testament, ye are gods. In talking about this, not that we're going out there and creating the cosmos, we're organizing, we're doing everything that God the Father and Jesus Christ did to create the planets. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that each and every single one of us as human beings on this earth have a divine spark in the light of Christ within ourselves. We live in the manifestation of the Christ, that we live in a Christ-soaked world, as Richard Rohr says. And we are each led to 
God by bringing the God without within ourselves. But just recognizing what it is in and of ourselves is almost an impossibility until we realize that there is a God outside of ourselves in this God. And as we discover God outside of ourselves, we begin to awaken that part of the deity and of God which was within ourselves, which is the exact same thing as, as our heavenly parents are. In this way, we are actually literally becoming as our heavenly parents in these contemplative moments because we tap into our external God, which awakens the sense of our own in internal deity. So I'm going to read it again. We only know him insofar as we are known by him, and our contemplation of him is a participation of his contemplation of himself. And so it's not that God just sits around all day thinking about himself. That's not what's going on. But it's this concept that God is also in this process of awakening the divine within us as we enter into this relationship of, of an awakening. We learn to see God differently and we learn to see ourselves differently. We learn to see God differently so we see ourselves differently. Going back to the beginning, we are informed about ourselves and so much depends upon how we think about God. So we inform our own identity by how we view God. So he goes on, we become contemplatives when God discovers himself in us. So one last paragraph. At that moment, the point of our contact with him opens out and we pass through the center of our own nothingness and enter into infinite reality where we awaken as our true self. So there's where Merton brings the discussion into the true self. Now, I, I'm going to bring this into a discussion of the Sermon on the Mount, then I want to get back to Riley to that question that I asked you about, about identity, and then I'll, I'll give my own experience too. Well, before you do that, doesn't that feel like a metaphor, like almost a Jonas-type experience right there? You know, when we awaken to our true self, we're, we're basically thrown up by the whale or whatever. I don't know what that is. Or maybe it's when he's sitting below the tree. It just does the first thought that came to my head as you finished reading that was, man, Jonas, you know, and that's that, that's that process of awakening to who we really are as spirit children of God. And, and of course, the end of that quote by Jesus when he says, I have said, ye are gods from Psalm 82 is, uh, ye are the children of gods, of God. And, uh, you know, even Joseph Smith, I think, can reconcile this idea of the God within. And in, uh, I can't remember what it was, it's in Doctrine and Covenants, I believe, and I hate to just randomly quote stuff when I can't cite chapter and verse. But, you know, he, he did say the Father and the Son are one. And Jesus implores God to invite his followers into that same relationship in John chapter 17. You know, that they may be one as we are one. That's what he's that's the great desire, is that we join in unity with God. And that's not some, it's not, it doesn't have to be a physical unity. It doesn't have to be a mystical unity, whatever you want to call it. Unity of purpose is the one that you like to hear in LDS circles, whatever. Unity. That's ultimately what we're going for, is to, is to have God see himself within us and us within God and have it be somewhat indistinguishable. So talking about this, I, I always, I'm always going back to the Beatitudes, obviously, right? That's just, that's just my, my mantra right now. It'll probably be for the next couple of years anyway. But I love the fact that, you know, so it's Spurgeon. It's Charles Spurgeon ends up writing a book, The Beatitudes. And in this book called The Beatitudes, he talks about how the law, which are the, the rules that we have, the standards that we have, the ordinances that we keep, the covenants that we keep, et cetera, everything. We are going to fail at every single one of those sometime in our life in some way. 
All right. Even if we never commit adultery physically, we're going to do it in our heart. If we're not going to go out and actually murder somebody, we're going to be angry with somebody, right? Everything that Christ gave in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to fail at that at some point. So the law, we're complete failures there. So what's even the point? All right. And I love what Spurgeon has to say about that. He says, it is a worthy and a grateful note that this gospel blessing that this gospel blessing reaches down to the exact spot where the law leaves us when it has done for us the very best thing within its power or design. The utmost the law can ever accomplish for our fallen humanity is simply to lay bare our spiritual poverty and convince us of it. It cannot by any possibility enrich a man. I'm like, wow. I couldn't love that more. Like, (laughs) I mean... (laughs) I, I heart that I so write, much. <laughs> I read that and that like speaks to my soul because it's like the whole purpose of the rules and the standards is simply for us to be able to come to an understanding that guess what? You're never going to be able to rise up to them in it perfectly. And guess what? That's not just an aside. That's the very point. And so that, that means that all of this guilt and shame and everything about our sin and about how everything bad that we're doing, I'm like, that's just not the point. Yes, don't live in your error. If we're not living true to our relationship with God, let's 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 actually sit down and learn how to sit with God. Let's learn how to be with God. Let's learn how to experience who and what God is and that infinite awe of what the divine is outside of ourselves and within ourselves and come to find out it's really the same thing. But why are we looking and placing so much emphasis on the rules and the regulations when we, if we look at the heart, the rules and regulations kind of take care of themselves. We know we're going to screw up. We're no screw up in the sense that these rules are out here in front of us and we're never going to keep them perfectly. And so because of that, the law can only ever bring us to the outer gates of the kingdom of heaven. If there is a gate, metaphorically speaking, it can only ever bring us to the outside of the gate. It can never really get us on the inside simply because the law is only there to show us our own poverty. But the fact is, is and going back to Spurgeon, the first beatitude, to be poor in spirit, is placed at a suitably low level where it may be reached by those who are in the earliest stages of grace, is nonetheless rich in blessing. The same word blessed is used in the same sense at the beginning as at the end of the chain of beatitudes. To be poor in spirit, we are as truly and emphatically blessed as the meek or the peacemakers or those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. No hint is given as to lower degree or inferiority measure, but on the contrary, the very highest blessing which is used in the 10th verse as the gathering up of all the seven beatitudes is ascribed to the first and the lowest order of the blessed. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I've talked about this before, but what he's getting at here is that there are eight beatitudes, and the first is to be poor in spirit, and the blessing is the kingdom of heaven. But the very last beatitude is to is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, the blessing for the last is the blessing for the first. And each beatitude is based on and is built on the one previous to it. But the first one is first. It's the poor in spirit. It's the poverty. It's the emptying. In other words, it's the getting rid of the false self. And immediately, just by the surrendering of the false self, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That that's it. That's the threshold. That's what places us right in the middle. We give up all of our earthly identities, and guess what we just inherited? 
the kingdom of heaven. What's what's a? I mean, I'm I'm thinking of this a replacement for the word of you know, or the phrase earthly identities or secondary identities or whatever, or false self. And and really it all comes down to pride. We can experience the emptying process in very small glimpses every single day. And it almost always happens when we just put our pride aside for a moment. Anyone who's ever had a discussion on Facebook and has, it's gotten heated. And then towards the end, someone just decides, you know what, you're, you might be right. And just calls it good after that. Right. <laughs> you know, like they, and it's, it's not necessarily that they no longer believe the thing they were arguing for, but they're willing to admit they don't know everything and they're willing to uh, put their pride aside. Even for that one moment, they experience a, uh, a forgiveness, a patience that has to be inimical to the kingdom of heaven. You know, I mean, those those types of virtues have to be dominant in the kingdom of heaven. You know, patience and, and uh, forbearance and long-suffering and that kind of stuff. So I think we can actually experience this emptying process and get a glimpse into the kingdom of heaven at multiple moments, maybe every single day, if we'll lay aside our pride, the things that we think define us, the things we think we know, and uh, just experience that emptying. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Riley, going back again to that, that question that I asked of you, has there been a moment in your life that you can identify where you had some kind of identity that drove who and what you were and that you lived into and was important to you, but that you later found was actually causing you probably more harm than not, and that you had to surrender and to let go of? Well, the great myth narrative of my life is my conversion story you know, I mean, when I joined the church at 21 years old, and I've kind of clung on to that for decades now. Uh, I'm 44, so I say decades plural, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. But, um, and, and, you know, that was an important uh, touchstone in my life that I refer back to a lot in terms of just a willingness to move beyond what I thought I knew. I remember that that initial experience when I was meeting with the missionaries prior to my baptism, I, I wouldn't call it contentious, but it was definitely me flexing intellectual muscle that I thought I had. And so I was asking them all these, you know, questions about very hot topics for antis or non-LDS people who would be like, hey, what about, you know, blacks in the priesthood or what about polygamy? And I was going into all these questions. And, you know, the missionaries somehow were able to convince me that the seventh discussion was the one where we get to all that. <laughs> um, <laughs> for those who are older missionaries, you know that th there was no seventh discussion. So, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, um, getting to, I guess it was after our fourth or so meeting that I, I went home and in, in prayer on my knees next to my bed, kind of the traditional way I understood it to, to be, um, I was willing to lay aside all of my own motivations and just let God guide me where he needed me to go. And I left no room for second-guessing myself, so I said, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. And that was ultimately what led to being baptized into the church. There are many narratives out there, uh, individual or family stories that might dovetail that or might uh, mirror that. And that's all, that, that's a, an important one in my life, but I'm actually going to 
go beyond that now and just go back to a moment. And, you know, your question earlier caused me to think about this. I hadn't thought about this before for a long time. But I remember when I was 12 years old and there was there was this moment. And I, I came home from school and I was in, what, eighth grade or something like that or seventh grade. I don't know, seventh grade, I guess. And studying something in algebra. And I come home and it, it was... Uh, it was that time after school when I tried to get all my homework done. And, you know, neither of my parents um, went to college. My my dad is, uh, I would consider, a, a man full of wisdom, but he has a GED. He never graduated high school the traditional way. My mom uh, had opportunity to go to college on a music scholarship, didn't go. And I just never really considered them at the time to be, you know, all that intelligent, which is a really unfortunate admission on my part right now. I I really regret thinking this way, but nevertheless, it was, I guess you'd call it innocent. It wasn't malicious. So anyway, I come home from school and I got this algebra homework and I sit down and my mom comes over and says, hey, you want a little help? And like, like any parent who's tried to help their kid with seventh or eighth grade math, you know, 20 years removed from it, she was lost. She's like, oh, I guess I can't help you. And I remember thinking to myself, this was like a critical moment in my adolescence. I am now smarter than my parents. No, I had that distinct thought, I'm smarter than my parents. And it was like this pride thing within me that welled up. Well, fast forward a number of years after having made so many errors and mistakes in my single life and marriage and whatever down the road I get 20, 30 years on. And I absolutely revere my parents now. I mean, not only do I think they're inc- incredibly smart, but they've got so much wisdom gained through experience um, that schooling just couldn't give them. And I rely on them heavily. I, I mean, I call them and talk to them and ask their opinions and advice. And, and they do the same to me in my area of expertise with finance and, and whatnot. And it, it's just been this process of letting go of who I thought I was. And of course, you know, I, I give myself a little bit of forgiveness at 12 years old for being a little bit cocky or whatever, and it's not a big deal. But the the view which I look at them now from is is one of equanimity, of, of equality. We're on, the, we're on a level playing field, and I, I have things that I can offer them that are of value and they, they have the same for me. And that's been a process of stripping down of, of my pride. And it's it's been a, a great thing because it's allowed me to open up and learn from other people who have a lot of experience and wisdom. That's awesome. That is, that's such a great story. I, I've got one of a dozen things I could choose from as well. One story that stands out to me is, you know, when I was growing up, my father was what I have often called a serial entrepreneur. He made made successful and killed a lot of businesses. <laughs> so, but uh, in that whole process, my family, we moved around a lot. And literally every year we'd move to a different place. So my childhood, all the way up until about the time I was uh, 11 or so, you know, maybe once, twice, three times a year, we had moved and all along I-15. So everywhere from Ogden all the way down to Vegas, all even down to Southern California and multiple places, Phoenix. So I basically was an I-15 child. I knew that uh, stretch of freeway really well. (laughs) And my mother was a trained Montessori school teacher. And so for the the time that I was in preschool and kindergarten, I'd go to a Montessori school teacher with my mom. And so she was training to do that. But then I was homeschooled. We moved around so much that kind of out of necessity and, and just the way my family 
was that, you know, I was homeschooled. I was the only child and it just made it really easy. And I made friends pretty simple, but my academics, my schooling really took a hit. And so by the time I was, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, most of my at-home schooling was over. And, and so I didn't do a whole, we didn't do a whole lot of homeschooling. And, and so whatever I learned, I, I was on my own. And so I kept up through self-study enough to kind of keep up with my peers in certain situations and certain, uh, certain subjects. And the ones that I could excel in, I really doubled down on because I started to actually have this identity that I was a fraud, that my friends would find out about me, that, uh, that I didn't know enough as my, as much of my peers and that I was not, I was not up to their level as well. And so I kind of had to play like shadow games, as it were, of, of like protecting what I didn't know. When come to find out in reality, I was equal with my peers in every way, but I, that wasn't my identity. I didn't have identity, I, just my lack of confidence at the time. And so I sought to overcompensate for that in a lot of ways. And as a teenager, my my mother had bipolar schizophrenia. And so there was a lot of working with my family nucleus was was really interesting and different than anybody else. I always felt like I was behind and so that identity of always being behind caused me to overcompensate in other areas of my life where it's, it was always catching up. It was always like I felt I had to catch up to something, someone's, some standard, some elusive standard that existed out there. It's not objective. It didn't exist anywhere. It just, there's kind of like this so conventional way of you go to college just after you turn, just after you get out of high school and then you go on a mission well, I went on a mission and I was only out for six weeks and I had to come back for medical and surgery. And because of the surgery, they wouldn't let me back because that's when President Hinckley was, you know, what they call raising the bar. And so I couldn't be signed off to ride a bike, so I couldn't go back. And so my whole identity as a child of being behind on everything, the only thing that I felt confident in where I excelled and I, I knew more than anybody else, as it were, was in the gospel, at least in the scriptures, because that's that's the one thing that I studied and I knew, you know, by the time I was 19 before my mission, I'd read the Book of Mormon at least six times. I knew the stories inside and out. I was a seminary graduate. And that was just what I knew. I knew all the answers to that. And so going on a mission for me was like, that was going to be it. And so when I was only out for six weeks, man, that was like, that was one of the hardest moments of my life. And those few years that followed, it just, there's a lot of my life that fell apart because of that and that loss of identity. And it took a long time to kind of get, get back on my feet. And because of always trying to play catch up, that affected the way that I was a provider. That affected the way that I saw myself out as a person who was providing for his family and the way that I was going out into the world. And I overcompensated. And a lot of my academics and a lot of the work that I got into was subconsciously fueled by this identity that I was behind. And whether or not that was financial, whether or not that was emotional, in, in emotional connections with others, and whether or not that was in uh, anything else. And it was just, it was weird. I didn't even, and I didn't even identify it. I was operating under this assumption that I, I didn't even know I was operating under this, this idea. And it wasn't until many years later where I like finally identified that I, I just had always felt like I was behind. And then I asked myself, well, what are you behind in? And the answer was nothing. Like, 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 what objective standard is there in the universe that you're holding yourself as a standard to? Objectively speaking, there's no nothing you're behind in. And it was just my sociocultural, my my life, my this natural life in which I was comparing myself to. But there's not even any good standards there. 
And so for part of me was being poor in spirit was finally recognizing and letting go of that ego-informed false identity of being behind that had negatively influenced and impacted so many aspects of my life. I think something that a lot of us can relate to with what you're talking about is just the prosperity and relative high education level we live amongst in this in the LDS community, generally speaking, at least in America. I mean, generally speaking, speak multiple languages, have advanced educations, you know, nuclear families and prosperity and good jobs. And that's just kind of the stereotypical Mormon family. And uh, within that culture, there's so much comparison. I mean, I live in a very, I guess, well-to-do area. I, I moved into it 19 years ago or whatever, and it was just a farm town. And I live in the same house that I moved into 19 years ago. And constantly there's that pressure, you know, oh man, I must not be, I must not be measuring up. And I, I see it amongst, you know, my neighbors and peers and friends and whatnot. And they build bigger and better and they buy more and more stuff. And I'm not to say I'm immune to it. It's, there's a lot of pressure there and it, it's, look, there's worse problems to have for sure, but it works against the whole spiritual, the idea of spiritual poverty yeah. for sure. It's comparison. Yeah. And that robs, I mean, it's like comparison is like the thief of joy, (laughs) you know, to, to do that, right? Oh, it really is. It takes you out of the moment, no matter what that moment is. It could be a joyful moment or a really hard moment, but it takes you out of that, that moment that you're experiencing and tells you, you got to be doing something to get a leg up. You know, there came a time, Riley, as an adult and after I'd been married, where for a good probably five, maybe up to seven years, I came into the state of being where I like I can only ever define it by I lost my hope. I lost hope. And it was it, it really wasn't in like a, a depressive state, like a like a chronic depression. It was really in a broader sense of just narratives that I had believed in or I believed about myself or about the way that I interacted with the world where I was just waiting around for like either motivation or I was was waiting around for happiness or I was waiting around for hope to find me. And like, I felt like as if that had never found me. And it took a long time for me to finally realize that there were certain belief systems and certain identities that I had and certain experiences that I had lived into and I, expectations that I had formed. And then when, when you create these expectations, a lot of the time you throw these expectations out subconsciously into the universe and then you live into them and they become self-reinforcing. And then you, we start to see like we get in these ruts in life where we're consistently going through these cycles and systems and we wonder like, how can we never break out of these? Because a lot of the times we don't even, we can't even identify what it is we're living in, what ideas we're living into and why we just have these self-repeating cycles. And so when I study the Sermon on the Mount, for me, this is just practical real-life solution stuff. Because when I read about being poor in spirit, it's about, hey, listen, all of those expectations that you've built up for yourself, let those all go. Everything. You know, even like we talked about two or three episodes ago, even our idea of God, like Meister Eckhart, let it go. Just like take everything down off the shelf, clear everything out, and then just be here with a blank slate. Tabula rasa. And just see what's there. Because what I have found is the only way that me personally, I have ever been able to get out of the rut of having a self-informed relationship with God 
And what I mean by that is that my ego, my identity, all of those things in which I've projected out into the universe that I'm, and I'm living into my own stories, I project onto God what I think God's nature is. And then surprise, I live into that relationship as though that's who and what God is. And so I inform who and what God is, and then I'm informed by it. And so then all of a sudden I enter into this relationship. And so for me, the only way that I've really found to get out of that with any layer of confidence is to simply sit in silence and to sit without judgment and to simply let God bring forward whatever it is that God will. And in those moments, and initially and even now, most of the time, it's nothing. And man, Riley, if I, if I can find a way to express just how important the nothingness has become to me, because when I sit in that nothingness, that almost means everything to me. And I don't even know how to explain that because that doesn't even make any sense when I say that. You know, listening to me say that doesn't make any sense. But the experience of just being there and knowing that I am with God and I am seen by God, and even if it's just that experience in itself and I don't have anything else come, the moment that I'm just there in those moments without judgment, without preconceived ideas, without expectation, and I'm just there present, and I know that God is there present. So that's... It's not only tough to do because we live busy lives, but it's really tough to do because we have so many years of experience with those belief systems and identities informing everything that we expect about God and ourselves and how we interact. And so when we sit down in those moments and we're able to put aside our expectations, sometimes it can actually feel a little bit dirty. Like there's some guilt associated with that because you're like, wait, I can't shed what I think I know about God because it's informed by a doctrine that I've ascribed to for so long. And that's that's scary for a lot of people and it it, it can have that feeling of oh man I'm I'm not I'm doing something wrong. And so it's a tough place to arrive at where you can actually sit in silence with no expectations or judgments and let God fill the empty vessel, let him decide what he wants to be for you. That's very difficult to arrive at that spot. I I was thinking about this conversation that we had a little earlier about action and contemplation. I think you and I, one of the reasons we're doing this is to document our journey, obviously, as we say in our prologue, but also it's been meaningful for us. And I don't fashion myself as a guru at all. I know you don't, but everyone, I think, wants to be an agent of change for for the better. And I've thought about various people who have been able to accomplish that while remaining very strong within their own faith tradition. Those people, to me, have been models for a long time because I have no desire to separate from a faith tradition that has given me so much. And I, I also am not trying to um, steer the ship. I, you know, I, I'm not steadying the yark, so to speak. Those leaders that are chosen to represent the the church are, those are the people. They do their job. That's that's them doing their thing. And uh, for me, I'm personally trying to experience something for myself and for my family and for anyone else who might be interested that doesn't necessarily change that structure, but it enhances my own faith journey along the way. And so I've I've thought about those people that I mentioned earlier who have been able to retain association while at the same time expanding the horizon of their experience. And I think that's sort of what we're trying to do here. At least I am. I don't want to speak for you. 
And so you've got someone like, you know, Mother Teresa or Richard Rohr is a perfect example of someone who's maybe a little outside lockstep with his Catholic community, even though he's a, a monk and, you know, has an active practice. Uh, but nevertheless, um, his his width and, and breadth of experience is maybe a little bit outside the mainstream. And uh, I'm not trying to be a rebel. I just, I'm looking for anything that is faith affirming and expands on the truth that I've already received and, and just makes makes my life better. And one of the things I've come to as a conclusion in going through this process is that, you know, I, I may not completely ascribe to every little detail of the law, so to speak, that you were talking about earlier. And the law, as we know, only condemns. There's no There's no sanctification or salvation in the law. And Paul speaks of that all the time in the New Testament. So I, I may not have complete agreement with the law, so to speak, or all the points of the law. But if I take things back and strip myself down to the the true self-version of what the gospel means to me, and I focus in on that and try my best to live according to that way of living, it's summed up best in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And when you're living in that mode, there are no accusers. There's nothing that could phase me at that point. He's the Christ is the pinnacle of everything we're trying to do. And the more I try to get close to him, I can't imagine someone say, you're doing it wrong. And if they did, I, it, it wouldn't phase me. I don't care. Because that's, that's the part that's been most beneficial to me in going through this whole contemplative journey is the closeness now that I feel with my Savior and the enhanced understanding of who God is within me and with me as I, as I experience him in those moments that you describe. The true self, false self, if I were personally to sum it up, it's getting back to who God is within me. It's that spark of divinity within. It's the ye are gods. I have said ye are gods, ye are the children of, of God. It's getting back to that very simple understanding of the most important identity as offspring of deity. Not trying to be provocative necessarily in terms of how we define God. In fact, we're, try, we're trying to undefine God and just trying to draw nearer to him as he comes closer to us. You know, something you said, Riley, got me to thinking about this passage from Spurgeon when he's talking about being poor in spirit. And he said, God wants nothing from us except our needs. And these furnish him with room to display his bounty when he supplies them freely. It is from the worse, not from the better side of fallen man, that the Lord wins glory for himself. You know, and that gets me to think about Moses 139. Behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of man. This is what I, I read, and this is how I interpret that verse. That it's not from the good portion of ourself, that God's like, yeah, they're doing good. It's from the redemption of the worst part of our character, that, that false self, that God is then glorified in us becoming glorified. That's the whole point of this thing, that God is more for us than we are for ourselves. We often think about God coming after us in anger and vengeance and that he's disappointed in us. And that's the kind of projection that we put onto God that I just find is so sad. To think that God is disappointed in us. See, this is another one of our projections onto it. Disappointment means that you thought one thing was going to be the case and something else happened. But how can you be disappointed when it's exactly as you know it? If God really does know everything from the beginning to the end and know it so perfectly, 
that there is no variance to it, that he knows what's going to happen. There is no disappointment in it. It just is what it is. Now, he can mourn, and he can be there, and he can suffer with us, you know, Jesus Christ and the atonement and suffering with us. But this whole being disappointed in, like, I thought you were going to do it better this time. Like, that's that's not even in the purview of what the nature of God is. And we need to stop doing these kinds of things to ourselves in projecting and thinking about these kind, this kind of God that doesn't even exist. But when he says here, not what I have, but what I have not is the first point of contact between my soul and God. The good may bring their goodness, but he declares that there is none righteous, no, not one. The pious may offer their ceremonies, but he takes no delight in all of their rituals. The wise may present their invitations, but he counts their wisdom to be folly. But when the poor in spirit come to him with their utter destitution and distress, he accepts them at once, and more so, he bows the heavens to bless them and opens up the storehouses of covenant to satisfy them. As the surgeon seeks for the sick, and as the almsgiver looks for the poor, in the same way, the Savior seeks out those who need him, and upon them he exercises his divine office. Let every needy sinner drink comfort from this well. You know, this is a completely different way of looking at God. It's not a transactional God. It's not a, if I do this, God does this. We have to start seeing God in the fully giving, the fully omniscient, the fully loving God that he is. Now, when we come to him, we're going to recognize that, as Spurgeon says, our imaginary goodness is more difficult to conquer than the actual sin we perform. You know, that that hits me every time I read that. Our imaginary goodness is more difficult to conquer than our actual sin. And by that, what he's meaning to say is that, listen, when we're filled in this ego, just like the people in Matthew 7, we're going to come to Christ saying, look at all the things we've done. We, we've healed the sick. We've raised the dead. We've cured, you know, we've we've cast the devils out. Those are imaginary goodnesses. If the heart is not there, if we've not truly awoken the true self, man can sooner be cured of his sickness than he could be made to forego and boast of his health. Human weakness is a small obstacle to salvation compared with human strength. There lies the work and the difficulty. See, it's in the ego of, of us thinking we're righteous. Now, Riley, I don't know about you, but I have never once met a society of people who are wicked who ever admitted to their wickedness. Or who were admitting to their wickedness in any other way than to kind of show their righteousness. (laughs) You know, it's like a way of saying, look how humble I am. You know, we get, we get cases like for instance, repentance cases, anti-Nephi-Lehi stories, those kinds of things where they begin to speak their trauma and they repent. Sure. And so they are, they are speaking of their wickedness as a method of healing from the trauma of sin. Yeah, that happens. That's not what we're talking about. No wicked society has ever self-identified as a wicked society. They always help their virtue. You know, it's just like the people of King Noah. When Abinadi came along and Abinadi starts telling him all about their wickedness and what they're doing. And when they took Abinadi to the king, they look and they say, they basically say, look, king, we know that thou hast not sinned. We know that thou art good. We know that thou art white. We know that everything thou has done. And Abinadi, he's just a crazy person. No wicked society ever self-identifies as a wicked society. So whenever we come along and the thought is ever occurs to us, hey, Lord, is it I? The answer is always, yes, it is. (laughs) Always. (laughs) It's us. It's always us. All of our piety, all of us thinking that we're righteous and that we're doing it, we're not. We've got to let it all go. All of the pride that we think we're doing it right, 
all of the insecurity that tells us we're unworthy and we're doing it wrong, we've got to let both of them go. So I'm interested in how this plays out a little bit because you talked about projection a little bit. And I think that's an important thing to talk about in terms of letting go of the false self. There's this scripture that is well known that says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. From Hosea 6.6, it's quoted in the New Testament, Jesus says it. He says, go ye and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And I I think that when we're framing this this conversation around spiritual poverty and stripping down, it has the veneer of, of sacrifice. And of course, he's talking to people in authority at that moment. And But back in Hosea 6.6, 6, he's just talking to Israelites. And so there's, there's different audiences, but the same message. Uh, and different in the sense of, you know, you've got sort of a lay person versus an authority figure. And so in, in the New Testament, it seems that Jesus is admonishing, you know, Pharisees or whomever to, you know, go and administer mercy and not think too highly of themselves for the sacrifices they make. I started thinking about that and how it applies to this process of emptying of the false self and, and trying to find that true self. And it, it's really about interaction. If you know that message is delivered to the Pharisees, and again, we need to start self-identifying ourselves not with the righteous, but with the sinners, because that's whom Christ has come to serve, not the righteous, but the sinners. And if we want to have that relationship with him, then we need to self-identify as, as what we are which is bankrupt in some sense, you know, in maybe many senses. And so this this process might be more interactive than than we think. It might have less to do with, you know, ourselves and more to do with how we interact with other people in terms of offering mercy when maybe it isn't even warranted. Giving up in arguments and just agreeing with thine adversary, you know, when when you're in the way. Um, giving to people who really don't deserve it. And, and deserve is a loaded word, but like, you know, in the world's estimation. And so I think that's part of the process maybe is not only are we doing this internal evaluation of what the most important parts and, and identities of who we are and whatnot, our association with God internally, but also the external actions start to change. And that's the connection between contemplation and action. So how do we act in the world? How do we interact with others? And one of the way to one of the ways to strip down your false self and have your true self revealed is in is in that uh, merciful approach to others. One of the ways that I recognized I was doing that thing too, in part of my experimenting with this, is that I've always loved academics. I love academics. Now, I realize all the problems in the academic world and the scholarly world. I get it. I I just like being there. I like the ambiance. I like the discussions. I like the different viewpoints, even and especially the ones I, I don't agree with. And when I was going to school, I you know getting a master's degree, I think when I started that, like I was explaining before, I started it with this idea of I was behind, I've got to catch up. Even as an adult, right? I had to let it go. I had to simply let all of that go. So all of the work that I put into a master's program, I just let it go. I just stopped. I had to walk away. It was a couple of years ago. I just walked away. I know that at some point I may go back and reapproach it. And if I do, it's going to be from a completely different viewpoint. I'm no longer going to be in there talking about it from this false self and this insecurity of trying to catch up. I'll go back and re-engage it, just like what you said, with this love and passion for what it is. 
because I do really truly have a passion. But my false ego, my false self also has this life that correlates with it. And so when I go into that experience, yes, I go into it with love and a passion for what it is, but I also go into it with this other thing of being behind and needing to catch up. And that causes a lot of anxiety. And so for me, what that looks like and what you said there looks a lot like to me in my own practical way as it really doesn't matter what you do. It just matters the reason behind it. So what does it really look like to live to your true self? Well, it can look exactly like your life looks like right now, but what's going to change is your entire motivation and the way that you come to it. Because in one way, we can live by fear, we can live by anxiety, we can live by dread, we can live in the world's narratives, or we can live by love. And man, we brought it up before, but there came a time when I started to recognize that if I was really being honest with myself, the overwhelming motivation by which I was coming to my work and coming to my vocation was out of fear. Fear of not being enough, fear of not being sufficient, fear of not making enough, fear of not having the right reputation, fear, 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 all the way down. And so I overcompensated to try to overcome that. And once I learned, and I really, it wasn't an intellectual learning, and I don't know how I did it, but it just kind of ended up happening, maybe because I was being intentional with it and thinking about it as much as I was. But there came a time when I started to act and it wasn't based on fear. It was just out of love for what I was doing. Fear for my, love for my job, not fear. Love for providing, not fear. Love for who I was serving. And everything changed overnight. And simply that, that switch made everything different in my life. And all of a sudden, just depression that I'd had went away. A lot of anxiety that I had went away. It just, and it was almost overnight. It was really an interesting experience. But yeah, when, when we talk about what this actually looks like in life and what it looks like to give up these identities, it doesn't have to mean that you, you completely change your life. It, it just means that those little, the way that you come to your life changes. Yeah, the intentionality, the approach, yeah. the understanding. Well, Riley, this has been a really great conversation. Do you have anything else that uh, you wanted to talk about? No, I think uh, I've pretty much summed it up. And uh, boy, I, I, I'm my true self now. I fully figured <laughs> it out. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> Um. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what I love about these. No, it's that's humbling. What I love about these conversations it's because so it's not that we're having the answers to it. It's just that I've recognized in my own life that hey, this is a thing, and hey, everybody else, this might be a thing in your life. Too. Well, it's a thing in all of our lives. Let's all take a look at it. Maybe what I've gone through can help someone else. Maybe you guys can share and express what's gone on in your life that can help someone else. Yeah. So there's no. Uh, Jeez. <laughs> yeah, I haven't figured anything else out yet. <laughs> but I, I love learning more about this stuff and then taking what I've learned and uh, applying it step by step. I'm not years and years into some of this stuff. Some of this stuff is weeks and months and that's that's it. And uh, as I continue to kind of add to the quiver and, and get another tool, it just does that much more for me and augments my experience in a really positive way. So I appreciate these conversations, and uh, I look forward to the next one. Uh, you have anything else, Shiloh? No, that was it for me. That was it for me. and look forward to coming back and do this again. All right. Well, for now, this has been Latter-day Contemplation. We look forward to you joining us in the next episode. Have a great one. See you guys.